What's up, everyone? This is Wes Lyon from McGill and Lyon Dental Advisors. Welcome to the Drilling It Down podcast. More dentists than ever are searching for solid, independent, objective financial advice. On this show, I sit down with my guests to help you see clearly through the fall, providing education as it relates to practice management, tax planning, investing, practice transitions, really any financial topic you can name that's going to help you reach your goals. Welcome back to another episode of Drilling It Down. Uh, joining me today is Mario Santiago, Tax and Business Planning Advisor with McGill Mine Dental Advisors and CPA. Mario, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Wes, and Happy New Year to everybody. Oh, absolutely. Hope everyone got a, a week or two off there without too many emergencies. And now we're back into the swing of things and seeing how we can make 2024 more profitable than 2023. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a couple articles that we want to go over with everybody today. And first and foremost, we really want to talk about hygiene and the hygiene department. Wes, I think we've been talking about this for probably one or two years now, maybe specifically after COVID. I kind of forget COVID was more than longer than one or two years, I guess. It's really three or four. But really, the lack of hygienists, the lack of assistance, it's really been pretty tough to hire people, to retain people, and to really keep them happy at the practice. So what we want to cover with you today is, one, how do we keep them happy if they're always asking for raises? And how do we make sure that you're not losing money in your practice by consistently having to raise their wages, but also keeping those hygienists at the practice? No, absolutely. And I mean, the wages are just getting out of control. I mean, Mario, I think you used to go after, what, doctors and attorneys, but now you're trying to date hygienists. Does that sound right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you'll see a hygienist out there making 80,000, 100,000 a year. Uh, sometimes working three, four days a week, yeah. you know, you got to keep Mario away from him. He might be a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, it, it's just, I really do think it's a career path that should be pursued more by people. It's just not sold that way. You know, people go for the traditional four-year college. But yeah, once again, if you could work three or four days a week and make that kind of money, I think it's a great oh, yeah. choice. I mean, a lot of people with college degrees never make that kind of yeah. money. And these hygienists, you know, they're around here. I mean, if you pick up a fifth day, I mean, you'd be a 19-year-old making $100,000 here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's lucrative money. And yeah, I mean, there's just not enough of them, though. I think how we got here was during COVID, a bunch of them, the older ones decided, you know what, I've had enough and, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and retire, especially some of them with the ones older in age. And even some of them too, that just, you know, their husbands really make enough and they can stay at home and they just mm -hmm. didn't enjoy staying at home. And, you know, kids might be a little older, but now all of a sudden they got to go and change their mask every time and mm -hmm. do all this nonsense. And, you know, now I said, you know what, I'd rather be at home than yeah. be here. So a lot of the hygienists just didn't renew their license. And then, you know, in true government fashion, the the natural thing would have been to let more hygienists enroll in the hygiene programs. And the problem is a lot of them are run by the governments because they're either through the community college network or somewhere else. Some states have private places, but, you know, you think they would, okay, we need to enroll more, but they said, no, no, that's not how it's going to work during COVID. <laughs> you know, we can't have as many in here because, you know, we got to distance them, even though they're about to get a career in which they're going to be in people's mouths. Yeah. So, you know, we got hit on both ends and it's probably not something that's going to solve itself real quick. I think I was talking to a doctor in Arizona and one of his assistants got accepted to hygiene school. And unfortunately, uh, she can't go for like two or three years. She's on a waiting list. She's accepted, but they don't have a spot for her. So, I mean, it's a shame because we really need them, but 
now we're here and, you know, a lot of these corporate groups levered up and took out a whole bunch of debt to buy practices and they really need to produce. So they really need the patients in. So they really need the hygienists. So their solution has been to outbid the private doctors. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think also after COVID there, I think there's been a lot of pressure in terms of people want to go remote now, right? They're looking for that remote job where they don't have to go in and they can work from home in their sweatpants. And I think that's putting a lot of pressure on it too. If somebody knows that they can make some decent money sitting at home and not having to go into the office. Yeah, I do think, fortunately, we're starting to see a little bit of kickback from that remote Mm -hmm. work. So, you know, we're in Charlotte and big banking town and, you know, now all the, all the banks, all the companies, (laughs) yeah, making everybody go in. My wife's one of them. She's at home and fortunately she's not, I think she's based out of Connecticut, but lives in Charlotte. So she only has to go in one, but Mm -hmm. everyone else now you got to be in there three days a week. So all that empty office space. Finally, they said we, we better make some use of it. I think the other (laughs) thing people found out was, you know, productivity from home isn't what it is from the office. And you know, people got their home computers and didn't realize that the company was tracking what they were doing all day and whether or not they were signed in and whether or not that mouse was moving. And, uh, you know, I think the companies will probably lay a lot of people off, but before they do that, they're going to see who moved. Yeah. <laughs> so no. that's step number one is, hey, come back to the office on Monday. We'll see if you even still live mm-hmm, here. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, and kind of bringing that back to the to the hygienists, you know, we said it's it's getting competitive and we have to make sure that we're offering them enough to keep them happy. And while I'd love to say that the 401k package is nice and all these other things are nice, they really just care about what they're getting paid. And really, doctors shouldn't worry too much about what they're getting paid as long as it's working for them as well. And that hygiene department is being productive for them as well. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I see is, you know, they're giving these staff their raises, but they're not really tied to any incentives. You know, they're not really looking to see how the practice can improve. Is the hygiene department even being efficient? So you're now you're raising staff wages and you have an inefficient hygiene department and that's just a lose-lose combination. Yeah. So if I hear you right, Mario, you don't really care what the hygienist makes. No. I mean, as long as it matches with what the practice is making and as long as you're profiting from that hygiene department, then I don't really mind. Yeah. It's kind of in business. We've got this thing where, you know, the CEO shouldn't be worried if the salespeople make more than the CEO does. Mm -hmm. Because if you cap your salespeople, you're going to cap your business. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of similar to a hygiene department and hey you know you don't necessarily want to cap what they want to make you just want them to produce because the more they produce the more patients they see the more dentistry is just going to naturally be needed to be done yeah we're not recommending anyone search for dentistry just to you know find it but oh yeah if there's 10 patients in the chair instead of eight patients in the chair that day there's two more patients that might have a dental problem that Mm -hmm. you have a solution for so yeah the, the more they can produce the better but I think during COVID, they got used to these, what, hour and 15 appointments where yep. they're trying to clean people's teeth over the phone. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's hard to come back from that because especially after a couple of years, you create a culture where that's the norm now. And a lot of people push back and say, oh, we can't go back to, to that way. And you definitely can. And it's funny, I also see it in practices who maybe you've had a hygienist there working for 30 years with the doctor who's also been working for 30 years and the doctor's maybe phasing out into retirement and slowed down. And now you got a new doctor coming in there and they want to really speed things up. And now they're used to this slower culture and that's really hard to to turn around as well. Yeah, well, it, it does become an issue, but Mario, I want you to walk me through now. You do this for a lot of your clients. So you talked about doing a hygiene analysis, figuring out how productive they are. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, how do you go about, you know, well, I guess first we back up a step. So the, the real goal here is to figure out how to keep them, right? Yeah. How can we pay them more, but still make more off of it? So if I heard you right, you said something about doing a hygiene analysis. So how do you do this analysis? How does it all fit together? What, what's the starting point? And I think something really caught my attention. You said a lot of a lot of the doctors just give them wa- wage raises and don't know, you know, how productive they are, what yeah. you're paying them. Okay, if we start there, how does a doctor figure out how productive their hygienist is? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first step, really, first and foremost, I always say that not every practice has the same bonus system necessarily, right? So the first thing is, is there a problem? And to your point, a lot of people don't know if they have a problem, and that's where a hygiene analysis comes into place. And what the hygiene analysis really does, you need to look at a couple different data points. First, how is each hygienist, how much are they producing? Right. And then you should be able to pull your production by provider, right? Absolutely. You should be able to pull that from your practice management software and figure out how each hygienist, how much they're producing. After that, you want to figure out how many days they're working, how many hours they're they're working, right? And basically what you want to back into is how many patients are they seeing per day? And a lot of times what we find is that a hygienist is there for, let's just call it 32 hours a week, but they're only seeing four or five patients a day. So it makes you think, what's going on in those extra hours. Yeah. Sometimes those hygienists are there for 40 hours a week and yeah. four days. <laughs> yeah. They got to get there an hour early to prep, mm-hmm. stay an hour late, even though they only saw four patients. Yep. And we'll talk about this later, but there could be different culprits to that. It could be maybe they're just not motivated to do more. It could be those longer time blocks that you were talking about. Maybe the fees aren't where they need to be. And, and we'll touch in that or on that a little bit here. But so you just probably put good point there. Maybe the fees aren't where they need to be. So what do you do if the fees aren't where they need to be? Do you have a secondary way of calculating, you know, how busy the hygienist is if it's really a doctor problem? Well, we take specific codes for the hygienist to figure out how busy they are. And we separate, for example, the doctor check. Got it. So, you know, if we go in there, let's just say we do it the the one way. And I think we're shooting for, you know, they're basically producing net productions about three times Mm -hmm. what they pay, right? That's right. So then, though, you just brought up a really good point because I think a lot of doctors misses. If the fees are off and there's something wrong there, you're saying you can go in by code. So, you know, you basically tell how many appointments a hygienist has by the production report? Yeah, you can. Oh, yeah. That that seems amazing. (laughs) How many people do you think actually look at that? (laughs) Not a lot. Not a lot. And it's something we look at every day. We obviously love numbers. But yeah, you can break out the number of every procedure that everyone's doing. And this is where I think it's important. You can make it individualized for each hygienist. And what we find a lot of times is someone's completely blowing it out of the water and maybe someone's not. And maybe we we can't really tell because we're busy doing dentistry. Yeah. So I I think we we put these together. We always put them together and look at every metric. So, you know, you're going to look at what they actually produce. That's one metric. See what they made. Then we're going to go to days work, but then we're going to put appointment time slots in there and say, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, I think we usually put a multiplier on these two, right? Like Mm -hmm. a a child profies half an appointment and adult profies one. And I think we do perio appointments at like one and a half if Mm -hmm. they're root scaling and planing. And then we just see how many appointments per hour they work, did they really see? Yeah. And sometimes that number can be a little bit shocking, but 
I think to your point there, is there a doctor problem? Are the fees the issue? You know, you could have a hygienist seeing 10 patients per day. It's not producing anything because, you know, Delta only reimbursed you $60 for a pro fee. So now your pro fee fee, you said it, the Delta fee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing we look at, Wes, that you made me think of is obviously how much are they making? So if you have someone who's been there 30 years and maybe they had a raise every single year for 30 years, but then they're slowing down that number is not going to match up with how productive they're being and vice versa. If you have someone that's young and maybe out producing, that's where you might see a mismatch. Okay. So I got my hygiene analysis. And for those of you who haven't subscribed, you know, you need to subscribe, read the article on this, but I'm going to use some of the numbers from the article here. So, you know, we've done our hygiene analysis. The hygienist is in the door and they're wanting to raise because they heard so-and-so is getting $75 an hour working for corporate and you're Mm -hmm. trying to keep them. But you're not trying to pay $75 an hour yep. unless they're willing to produce at that level. So I think in our example here, the hygienist was producing, what was it, $949 yep. per day. Mm-hmm. But the hygienist was making $371 per day. So that's not adding up, and yet they're wanting to raise. So what we found was the hygienist wasn't very productive. The hygienist was already making more than they should, and... You know, obviously, it'd be great to just tell that hygienist to go take another job and find a new one, but that can't happen either. So now (laughs) we're stuck here trying to figure out the solution. How can we make this work and what's our solution going to be? And that's the main gist of this article. But walking through that, Mario, making 371 a day, three times that is supposed to be 1100. And yet this hygienist is only producing $949 per day. How do you set up a bonus system, a comp structure to try to get this hygienist more money, but also make you more money? Yeah. So this is where we set up more of a hybrid system where you establish a base where they're going to get paid, right? No matter what, but then you do a commission on top of if they hit this base production. So like you said, they really should be at 1100 per day, but they're at about 950 for, per day. So really what they should be doing is hitting 1100. And if we can motivate them to hit more than 1100, then we can structure for them to get, let's say, 30 to 33% of anything above that number. Now they still need to get to that 1100, which, you know, you just got to have that conversation with them and let them know that for their level of pay, that's how much they should be producing at least. Yeah. And that production, we're talking net production or gross production? We're talking net production. Oh, that can be a doozy for some people. It can, it can. And I think we talked about this earlier, but especially in a transition, I've seen older doctors who maybe had a system where they were paying off gross, even an associate or something like that. And then you go to the new doctor and it's a little messy. (laughs) No, absolutely. So, okay. So we kind of got the system. If they make, basically, if they make 30% above the base amount and the base is three times their pay, we're always going to be paying them a third of their net production, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll never be in trouble. And if they want to make more, then they have to produce more. Now, how are we going to help them produce more? (laughs) Yeah. So that's where we go back to some of the efficiencies that we were talking about earlier. Maybe we need to look at those appointment blocks and figure out if we need to shorten them, if they've been getting longer after COVID, after all those protocols. Maybe if you put this incentive system in place, they're actually incentivized to fill the schedule, whereas maybe before they were just showing up and working and leaving. Now they actually have an incentive to fill the schedule. Maybe they're being better about cancellations. I know some practices have a a list, maybe some priority patients who expressed maybe on the way in that they're free whenever. And maybe having this list of patients that you know can come in in a day's notice is good to have. And 
the practices that I've seen do this very well is where everybody's on the same page about filling the schedule. And those are the practices that are the most successful. So back to the whole thing about, I don't care how much they make, you know, if they're incentivized to go over that 1100 and they're making a lot of money, well, you're also making money. So that's a win-win. Yeah. Now all of a sudden if they're at that base amount and I think we use like $160 value per appointment here for the hygienist, which you you know, you need to calculate your own value per mm-hmm. appointment. But mm-hmm. you know, now all of a sudden they got a hour they're either gonna sit around or they hit their base. And if they bring in, you know, a patient, they're gonna get a third of it. So Ooh, now I'm going to make, you know, $53 yeah. off of it, you know, a whole lot more incentive there. Absolutely. Um, and like you were saying before, too, it, it could lead to more doctor production. It probably will. I mean, I, I was talking to a doctor the other day and she really felt it because she lost a hygienist or two. And and I'm glad she said it because we know it happens. But she mentioned it to me that she was also seeing a lot less patients and that she really needed to get a hygienist back in there. No, absolutely. A couple other things we can do. We can shorten those appointment time slots back to where they need to be. You know, they should be 50 minute slots for regularly scheduled appointments. We typically recommend we do the root scaling and planning at the beginning of the day. And then, of course, kids appointments should really only be 30 if you have them. Mm-hmm. So generally, I tell people, and this isn't real popular with the hygienist, but hey, if we're looking to see at least eight a day or nine a day, you're going to schedule one extra. We're almost always good for one cancellation at A. Mm. So if we schedule an extra, the schedule will get pretty compressed, but it'll loosen once that one person doesn't show up. Mm. Now, some days, all nine people, all 10 people are going to show up and the hygienist is going to have a busy day, but hey, they're going to get bonus off yep. of it. But it's a surefire way to keep the schedule busy. Another one, you'd mentioned the doctor fees and talk briefly about that one. So if our fee schedule is not set correctly, we're blaming the hygienist for something that's really the doctor's problem. So mm-hmm. we need to make sure we've got an appropriate fee schedule and, you know, appropriate fee schedule. I always like to call it is different depending on how the practice operates. Most of our viewer base is probably operating in the high touch practice area for at least what we found. But, you know, if you're, to know what type of practice you are. If you're shuffling people in and out, you're a super high volume practice and that's your area, then you know you, you might not want your fees as high. But if you're delivering that white glove dental experience, then you should be charging a white glove price. You know, it's it's not to say one model's right or wrong. Some people might love to just get in there, get the teeth cleaned and run out. Some yeah. people might like the, you know, chair side manners, but you know, if you're spending more time with each patient and they're getting that experience, then, you know, you need to charge for that experience. Nobody would expect to go to any other place. You know, I go to Applebee's or I go to Steak 48. Yeah, I'm expecting (laughs) to get treated differently at each of them. It's not that one's better or worse. Maybe one tastes better, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's that they're two different experiences. You need to charge for it. So we find a lot of the doctors doing that. They're comparing themselves to things that or practices that aren't really comparisons for them. So we need to make sure that fee schedule is set right. But I also think it's interesting how this trickles into being in-network versus out-of-network. That's what I was going to say, too. And I'm guessing, you know, Wes, if you're offering that high-touch, high-service, and you're really busy, it might be time to take a look at those insurance, you know, whether you're in network with a ton of companies, just one, and figuring out what kind of impact that has on your practice. Yeah, this is a good way to incentivize the hygienist to see things your way as well, because, you know, if the hygienist is getting bonused off their net production and you're talking about getting rid of the insurance write-offs, and Mm -hmm. it's funny how the culture can change of a practice of a lot of times practices have trouble leaving 
in-network status because the staff members feel bad for the patients and they don't sympathize with the doctor. But then all of a sudden, you know, the hygienist bonus money is, you know, tied to it. And they start to see (laughs) things like you see it, which is why in the world are we doing a cleaning for $65 when we're supposed to be charging $105, for it? And now also when they talk to the patients, they're much more educational about it versus, you know, I'm so sorry, we're not going to take your in-network anymore. Mm-hmm. And hopefully mm-hmm. you can find a new doctor or you can find some new insurance. And instead, they'll encourage them and be able to educate them on, you know, why it is that they have to pay the full fee versus, you know, getting the discount rate. Because sometimes, you know, it's, we won't name any of these big practices in America, but they're there. Everyone knows who they are and everyone's seen an over-treatment plan once or twice. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it just takes an explanation. I know we always laugh. I've, I've been over-treated here in Charlotte for certain. <laughs> and I figured that one out the hard way. Yeah. But, you know, the, the staff members and really everyone just needs to be able to explain that to the patients. But if they're doing it this way, I found it's a whole lot better when they go out of the network. Yeah. And I think it's super important for everybody to be on the same page and actually believe in why they're going out of network. Cause you know, you might be going out there and telling the patients that you're going out of network, but the staff doesn't really believe in you or believe in why it's beneficial. But if you're both on the same page about why it's better for both the patient and better for the practice, then you have this story where you're coming together aligned and telling the patient what they need to hear. Yeah. I mean, I once checked out and the front desk was trying to get me to sign up for dental insurance to get a discount. And I'm going, what in the world is wrong with you? Yep, that's Let exactly the doctor take about. the full fee. I am willing to pay. I think she did a great job. <laughs> yeah. I that, have the money. And that's what we do when we make a plan to go out of network. You don't want to just we have seen some people who just drop an insurance company without thinking about it. And we definitely don't recommend that because it could be a mistake. But if you're diligent about it, you talk to your staff about it. If you have an associate, you talk to your associate about it. You talk to your patients about it. Then you can make sure you're doing it properly and and with care. Today's episode is brought to you by the McGill Advisory. The McGill Advisory is your resource to reaching your financial goals faster with greater confidence and less stress. Members will receive our monthly newsletter delivered to their door, containing all the latest and greatest tips as it relates to taxes, practice management, and achieving financial independence. Membership also includes access to our online portal, including archived articles, webinars with available CE credits, discounts on educational seminars, and much more. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your first year subscription. No, absolutely. I want to move on. You know, we got a lot of great articles in here. We won't touch them all, but, you know, there is one in there, the Corporate Transparency Act. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you you can no longer hide behind, you know, an attorney or or something. So this is going to impact some of you. So make sure that, you know, you get the newsletter, give it a read, make sure you're preparing everything correctly. Yep. I do also want to touch on the estate tax rules, Mario. So this is a big one coming up and we can't be certain what the future tax laws are going to hold but right now i think it's just over it's about 13 and a half million mm-hmm. each basically that you can pass away with without having any tax on it so i'm I know everyone's super excited. The government really likes to encourage good behavior. <laughs> so those of you that work hard and save money and invest it, you get taxed on the income, you get taxed on the investments and oh gosh, it must be done and nope, wait till you wait till you pass over and then the government's sitting there waiting yeah. with their arms open saying, "Hey, I'm I'm going to need some more <laughs> of that too." So Yeah, and don't get me wrong, it's a great problem to have if you're running into an estate tax problem, but at that point it's really about 
how do you want your money to work for you after you're gone? You know, do you want it to go to your kids, to charity, or do you want it to go to the government? And I think most often than not, people want to limit the amount that goes to the government. Yeah, whenever I see people, I say, look, we, we got a few options here. Uh, we got, I think it's four total off the top of my head. And one of them I'm not going to let you to do. Uh, one of them we can spend the money. Mm-hmm. Another, we can get it to the children. You know, a third, we can give it to charity. And these are all three great options. It just depends on what's going to make you happiest. And the fourth is we can wait for the government to take 40% of it, but I ain't going to let you do that one. <laughs> Hurt me personally. Yeah, that that one's not a good one because, you know, I like to half jokingly refer to them as my favorite charitable organization, but they're also the least efficient charitable organization mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. all time. So well, what happens, though, for those of you listening is, you know, right now you got about 13 and a half million each spouse you can pass away with that is exempt from federal estate tax. And next year, 2025 is going to be the last year of the current limits. Mm-hmm. And we expect next year to be about 14 million each. So you can get up to a total of 28 million passed on to the next generation if you pass away before the end of 2025, mm-hmm. which that part of it, fantastic. The problem is in 2025, those limits are going to cut in half and it's going to be about 7 million each. Mm-hmm. So one quick note for those of you listening, if you had a parent or a family member pass away in the last couple of years, these exemptions are actually portable. So, you know, if you're married, each of you has 14 million next year and one of you passes away, great. The other spouse would have 28 million. But only if you file an estate tax return and claim this to be portable. So you do need to file a form. You need to talk to your CPA. But for those of you that had a parent pass away and this may have been overlooked, or you may think, hey, not a big deal. You know, the limit's 13, 14 million, not going to be an issue. But if it goes down to seven and we don't have that other exemption, it could become an issue. Mm -hmm. And what's really neat about this is the way the law reads and the regulations, if one spouse passes away and they call it i think it's a like unused exemption amount i forget the exact term for it i have to look in the article i wrote about it but you know this unused exemption is it ports over to the other spouse it doesn't get decreased if the exemptions go down in half Mm -hmm. so if you had one spouse pass away in 2024 and their exemption was 13 and a half million and the other spouse passes away in 2026 and it got cut in half to seven well they have 20.5 million on the second spouse so it's super important if you know you did have parent lost a parent something like that that you get this form filed just in case all it takes is a form to get this Mm -hmm. portability over but then kind of going back here, you know, this amount and the the problem is it it's going to cut in half and it $28 million. Congratulations. If this is an issue for you, <laughs> it certainly is an issue for many of you. And we help people solve this issue all the time. But the first thing is congratulations. You've mm-hmm. clearly saved a lot, but if the exemptions go from 28 million to 14 million and you're over it, what are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a couple of things we can do. And and if I'm hearing you correctly, Wes, right, if somebody right now is sitting on 16 million, 
you probably need to take some action before those estate tax limits get cut in half in 2026. Pot- potentially, yes. Yeah. The, the one caveat I will say with everything is we can always help everyone with everything we go over. And there's certain things I always tell people, this is not a do-it-yourself. Yep. You know, you need to talk to a professional, somebody that really understands this stuff before you go trying to escape the estate mm-hmm. tax. You absolutely want to try to escape it. We help people do it all the time, but... Don't put the do-it-yourself method together. Yeah. This is way too important. And, you know, the IRS probably going to look if you mess something up. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that, that's the problem is if right now you got one amount and you think you're under it, but come two years, you're going to be yep. over it. You know, we've potentially got a big problem. And there could be some things we do to solve it now rather than wait. So, Mario, I know you know a few of them here. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do you got top of the list to start solving it? Well, before I get too technical, I always like to say that the first thing you should do is figure out what you're going to do with the money. Because, be- you know, believe it or not, most of the times I sit down with people, I say, so what are you going to do with this $18 million? And they have no clue. So that's really the first step. You know? Like the same way, thing I did to get it. I'm going to let it sit yeah. there. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know. I just, I've just i just been saving for 30 or 40 years. So yeah, figure out you know, how much do you want to leave to the kids? Well, I always get a good laugh at that too when you ask that question because usually the people with the 18 million sitting there, you go, what are you going to do with it? And they go, what do you mean? How, how are you going to get me enough money to retire? Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, going, yeah. they're still nervous about pulling the trigger on like, selling the practice. You could put this all in cash <laughs> and spend for the rest of your life and not have to worry about Yep. So that's the first thing, I guess, would be, hey, figuring out, are you going to spend it? What's it going to be there? And do you have enough? But once you figure that out, Mario, where do you go next? Yeah. So one of the things you can do, and a lot of people are familiar with this, but you can start giving like, let's say, annual gifts to the kids or to people you care about. And next or this year's about 18000 per individual that you gift it to. And if you and your spouse do it, it's double that amount. And that amount, basically what it means is you can give that without it eating into your exemption for estate tax purposes. So you can give this to anyone. So it doesn't have to be your kids. Yeah, that's right. And how much can you give to any individual? 18,000 per person. So if each spouse gave 18,000, you give 36. Yep. And then if, if is that your Venmo written down right there, Mario? What? <laughs> yeah, if anybody wants to send this my way, uh, no, but you you can also do it for the spouse uh, of of your son or daughter, things like that. But yeah, if if you want to send it to us, oh, feel so free. if you did eighteen thousand each, so you could do thirty six thousand, and then you're saying if you know your kid was married, mm-hmm. then you could do seventy two thousand. Yep. Man, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So I mean, if you make a list of some people you care about. That's the first thing you could get started without even eating into your exemption. And yeah, we always tell people too. I think you can pay tuition and medical directly as well. You can do that directly. So yeah, you can, if there's a big hospital bill, you can pay directly. If you want to pay for your grandson or granddaughter's education, you can pay the institution directly and you don't necessarily have to put money into like an account. Now, I've always been stubborn. So I like to make everything and earn it myself. But I got in trouble because my father-in-law watched me give this presentation. (laughs) But it's something I always tell people that, you know, hey, if the kids are going to get it, they're going to get it eventually anyways. I'm not saying to load up a 23-year-old with money, Mm -hmm. but, you know, you got to 35-year-old child that has their own children and they're struggling to make ends meet now, the money's going to mean a whole lot more. I'm not saying necessarily give them $10 million right now and let them just 
waste it. But yeah, you know, you give them thirty thousand dollars a year right now that can go towards the kids' activities, you know, or you pay to put them in private school if you're not in a mm-hmm. great school district, things like that. You know, that's going to mean a whole lot more to your kids than when you pass away and they're already 60-something and they have enough to retire. It's not as meaningful. And to you as well, right? You know, I think a lot of our clients sit down and they'd rather see the effects of what their money went to, right? So it's like they get to see their kids go to school or their grandkids go to school or things like that. Yeah, I like to say it's warm hands versus cold hands. (laughs) You know, if you're going to give them the money, it's... It's either coming with your warm hands or coming with your cold yeah, hands. And at least while you're, you know, alive, you can choose where it goes, right? In a way. I mean, you can still do that with proper estate planning documentation, but you still have some direction in, in where you're gonna put that money. No, absolutely. So that's one of the first things too, especially I, I think I've at least found, you know, I don't have any grandkids, obviously, but uh <laughs> I, I found that most people in this boat, you know, sending the grandkids to private school, taking them on vacations, doing things like that. You mm-hmm. know, I, I remember we had this uh had this doctor I met with once and his big goal was to take have this huge family vacation. So he was looking at buying this ridiculous house and I said, you know, this is just not a a great you got the money, you can do it, but look at how much money it's gonna cost you. And I walked through it and he goes, Well you know, how else am I going to do it? And I said, well, we'll just rent the thing for a week. And he goes, this $25,000. So I don't That's care. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, go rent the 15 bedroom home on the beach yep. and take the whole family there once yeah. a year, spend it to them. You know, those are, those are probably the first things that you can do. But yeah. even still, you know, you can, if you have that much money, second homes work as well. I mean, we we're meeting with a doctor locally here and he had originally sent me an email and he's trying to figure out how to sell his beach home and not pay tax on it. So I was going to meet with him to help him. He goes, actually, I've changed my mind since we met. I appreciate your help. But, you know, I've been there all summer and all the kids come, you know, one week at a time. I've always got someone there. I get to see them. This house is making me happy now. <laughs> and it's it's true, though. A lot of the times, you know, I actually go to my parents' house. My parents have a small beach house, too. And, you know, I know they get to see their grandkids all the time because, yeah. you know, it's a free beach vacation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, you, you try to get the family together and it's pretty tough when everybody's married and has kids. But as soon as you offer, hey, we're going to cover for it. Everybody's schedule is going to magically open up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or we're going to, you know, hey, we're going to go to Aruba and I'm going to pay for everyone and their spouse and their grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, yeah, everybody's going to when Aruba <laughs> having a good time. So yeah, that's definitely the first place I would look is really just doing things that are going to make you happy and also do things for yourself too. I'll never forget when I was first starting out, I was just a typical financial advisor and I met with this guy that worked for Lockheed Martin and I'm going through his benefits package. He's just basically counting on living on social security, you know, pulls up in a, you know, rusted old truck and, you know, I'm like, okay, uh, this, yeah, they sent him to me because, you know, they didn't think he had much money. So I start running through his retirement package and I, mean, I start finding millions and millions of Lockheed Martin stock. I'm like, but did you know that you're worth $12 million liquid? And you know, this guy had no idea. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, what are you going to do with it? And you know, yeah, I don't know. Well, how much do you want to leave your kids? He goes, an Amex bill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, so you got to start spending. Like, well, buddy, you're spending four thousand dollars a month, and you got twelve million. You know, yep. we really need to hit this up. So, you know, he said he always wanted a Corvette, and I told him, I was like, well, you just need to leave here and go yeah, to the Corvette. Go to the lot. Yeah, <laughs> I actually did that the other day. First recommendation to a client: immediately purchase this vehicle after the meeting. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you've got the means, I mean, make yourself happy too. I. 
I, this might have been a little harsh to joke about with my father-in-law, but you know, he was trying to buy this BMW X5M, and he mm-hmm. was—he's re- really concerned that people, you know, would see him in such a fancy car and something. Kind of sat there and just came right off my tongue. Probably should have bit a little bit, you know, be sensitive. But I looked down, I was like, Kurt. If you don't go buy a $100,000 SUV, when you pass away, we both know your daughter is going to look at me and go, (laughs) I'm buying this SUV and I'm going to say no. And she's going to turn and go, it's not your money. (laughs) So one of you is going to have a $100,000 SUV and you just need to figure out who. And he ended up buying it. (laughs) But now... We're trying to get him to drive it. Yeah. Now he has it. It's in the garage. He doesn't want anyone to see himself in it. So he's driving around a Ford Maverick that's got like roll-up windows oh in it. <laughs> but yeah, do do things for yourself. Anything you wanted. I mean, it's, make sure it's going to make you happy. I mean, you don't necessarily want to spend the money just to mm-hmm. spend it on something that ain't going to work. But going first class too, if you've got this problem, you know. If you're worried about how to avoid the estate tax and you're sitting in the back of the airplane, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. If you're going on that eight-hour plane ride, you better be getting first. <laughs> Remember, if you don't go first class, your kids will. And that famous postcard we found, I couldn't find a postcard to say, if you don't go first class, your kids will. But I did find one that said, if you don't go first class, your son-in-law yeah. will. <laughs> so I think I think your father-in-law probably bought it when he realized you would be driving the BMW if he passed away. Well, I did. Uh, <laughs> he did make a joke to me. He goes, I didn't opt for the rear heated seats so you would be a little less yeah. comfortable after that joke so i turn and go are you sure you don't want to be in a heated seat when i take you to your doctor's appointments <laughs> no well aside from spending it was i know we talked about education but another thing you could do is put money into 529 plans for the grandchildren you could do something called super funding them and putting about five years worth into a 529 plan so if education is important to you that's another option Yeah, and I think with that money too, so there's a beneficiary on each account, right? Mm -hmm. But you can be the owner of the account. So this is a good one because it immediately leaves your estate. You make the gift or the beneficiary, but you can change the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people we recommend is, and what we found is simplicity is key in retirement. You know, you just want to be able to relax. So one of my recommendations is, hey, pick a date, whether or not it's when they're born. I think John says he does it when they leave the hospital. (laughs) But, you know, you could do it their second birthday if you missed it. Let's do it when they're born. Go ahead and super fund it. Put the money in there. The education's covered. You got it out of your estate and easy way. And, you know, it goes to something meaningful. Mm -hmm. And again, that's kind of back to that point of, you know, everyone can remember struggling and trying to get everything done. Now, you know, that's just something where you're not really spoiling the kids. It's not. You know, it's not something where now all of a sudden, you know, you gave them a Mercedes, got enough money, don't have to work, but you took a pretty big burden off of their shoulders by funding the college expenses. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's something that everybody would appreciate and would go a long way. And the last one we have here that we'd really want to talk about is doing something like a family limited partnership. And the reason we like this one is you can actually move assets out of your name into your kids' names. But the first thing we get there is, well, well, I don't want my kids to have seven million right now, but actually you can retain control of those assets, but technically you moved it out of your state and it will be in your kids' names. But the good thing is that, you know, if you let those assets sit in your name for let's say fifteen or twenty years, they're gonna grow substantially and you're gonna be running into a significant estate tax problem. But if they grow in your kids' names, you've basically taken out that growth from your name. Yeah. So what we're doing with a lot of people is, you know, if we do all these other things and we still got a significant estate tax, what we're gonna look at is, you know, you can use your exemption at death or you can use it during your life. So what we're looking at is, okay, well, 
you know, maybe I go in and use my exemption and the IRS won't claw back the exemption. So let's say, you know, I've got $50 million and my exemption is going to be 14 million next year. Well, if I use the 14 and it goes down to seven, they're not going to claw it back. I'm just going to have no exemption left. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, it's going to be beneficial to try to use the exemption ahead of time, get it out of the estate market. As you mentioned, now all the growth is removed. So not only remove 14 million instead of 7 million, but all the future growth. So depending on your age, if it's going to double every seven to 10 years, you know, that 14 very well could turn to 50 or 60 by the time you pass away, which could save you $20 million in estate taxes. So the numbers get really, really big on planning this stuff, right? Yeah, this is probably one of the big ticket items. We're not talking about a couple bucks here. We're talking about millions that you could be saving if you really plan it right. And that's a couple million more that could go to that charity you want to give to or to the kids or to the grandkids or whatever your goals are. Absolutely. And one thing to note there, family limited partnerships are also not do-it-yourself items. (laughs) Don't go home after this and and just create one or something. Yeah. You need to have a, a business to create it with. So it's most common. We're going to create the family limited partnership with the office building. Mm -hmm. And you can still sell the office building, keep the partnership going, but we do have to create it with a business entity. So that's key for a lot of people. You know, say, oh, I'm going to sell the office building in three years. So I don't want to do it. You go, no, we need to do it now if Mm -hmm. you're going to sell the office building in three years. And we really can't have personal assets in there either. So you you can't say, well, I'll do it with my beach home. No, has fantasy land. We can't do it with the beach home. So they're a little bit tricky to get started, but the reason we like them over some of the trust you can do is, you know, you can self-manage them. You don't need to have the trustees. We don't need to have a whole bunch of people. They just require, you know, a few thousand dollars to get up and running. And then it's an extra tax return each year. But otherwise, you know, not a ton of fees involved. You still retain control of it. Very simple to pull off and very popular with dentists just because most of them do own yeah. their office building. So, yeah, that that's definitely something to look at and be aware of coming up here because, yeah, the estate tax is going to go down. We haven't done a lot of these, but we're starting to fire up the old tricks. Now, yeah. the estate tax limit's going to get cut in half. Now, and the gist of all this is a lot of people leave the estate planning last in terms of planning items, and it's really important to take a look at it. You know, I know it could be far down the road. It might not be. It's just important to have something in place so that, you know, your family's taken care of and the, your money's taken care of as well. Yeah, well, I know there's an article in here about insurance, and Mara, I think uh, in the next few months, we're going to have an insurance webinar out where we're going to really dive into the details here. But I, I think the the gist of it is, you know, want to make sure you're properly insured, not over-insured. So be on the lookout. It's not going to be out tomorrow, but we are going to get on the, the hunt for it here. But I, I did want to bring up one last thing here, which... I think as of this recording, we actually, we do have to write these articles ahead of time. And <laughs> unfortunately, we didn't get it out in the January issue, but there is an email out about it. And if you are listening to this on the podcast and the prior episode that came out, the special issue is relating to this and it's the employee retention tax credit. Mm-hmm. So we did a whole hour on it, Tyler and I, we're not going to get into a ton of detail here, but basically the IRS is cracking down on these employee retention tax credits because, you know, everyone's seen the advertisements get 26000 per employee, and hopefully you didn't take the 26000 per employee. There are some legitimate ways to qualify, but most people aren't going to get 26000 per employee. So if you did get one of these promoters, you got this 26000 per employee, or if you're not sure, you know, go. There's an article that got posted, but there's also 
a webinar on it. And what the IRS has done is depending on where you are in the process, if you haven't deposited the money yet, there's a withdrawal process. If you think your claim was fraudulent, you want to avoid scrutiny, penalties, interest. And if you have deposited the check, the IRS is now offering a voluntary disclosure program and you'll have to pay back 80% of what you took. And the reason they did 80 is because most people paid the promoters 15 to 30 percent mm-hmm. to put it together so and hey pay back 80 you can keep 20 to make up for the promoters but the terms of the deal you have to turn in the promoters uh-huh. so that's kind of the only downside is some people had their cpas do it and they did it fraudulently and you know they're gonna have to turn over the cpa for it but you know hey if you took one of these you got a very large one Go watch the webinar, listen to the podcast. The webinar has slides with it. Yep. So you can go, you know, if you're watching this online, you can see it through the McGill Advisory. If you're listening to us via Spotify, Apple, or another podcast out there, if you go to mcgillhillgroup.com, this webinar is it's actually going to be free. It's not behind the paywall. We're just trying to help as many people as possible kind of navigate this, make sure they don't end up in in deep stuff with the IRS because the penalties, we did an example in the webinar of how ugly this can get. And the penalties can get pretty ugly mm-hmm. even without, you know, we, we don't think they're going to prosecute anyone criminally, a taxpayer at least. They're definitely going to po- prosecute some of these promoters criminally. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> but they're not going to go after the dentist criminally, we don't think. They're just going to go after probably the accuracy related penalties and interest, but that interest rate's gone up. So, you know, it's a little bit of a smoking gun. Make sure you check that out if you haven't. Make sure you did yours correct. And otherwise, I think that's everything we had. Mario, anything else you have? No, sounds like if you don't have plans this weekend, you should sit down maybe Saturday night, 730 with your spouse, crack open a bottle of wine and watch the ERC webinar. Yeah, I don't know. If you took the ERC and your spouse doesn't know about it, you might want to watch it yeah, yourself. It might, lead, might lead to a fight, so maybe do it yourself. Yeah, but no, it's definitely something. I think if you did take a large amount, it's definitely something you want to look at, though. Make sure you get right. And then otherwise, a couple things. We do have an investment article out here. Just quick announcement. We already recorded it. So we will have a monthly investment corner podcast coming out as part of the Drilling It Down series. So that should be out here in about a week or so. We're trying not to bombard you too much since we got them flying out. But this year, we're going to start introducing some more episodes into the series, give you more details on various topics. So I think we'll have Liam Fitzgerald of Lion Wealth Advisors on the next one. And then I think I'm going to have one of the transitions guys. We'll probably have Jonathan Martin on here to give us a transitions update and talk about kind of what's going on in the DSO market partnerships, everything there. So our goal for 2024 is to get you more content coming more often. So if there's anything in particular that you know you want to hear about, please give us a call. Let us know. We'll always be happy to provide as much content as we can. Yeah, we're excited. I'll have something to listen to on my commute here to work, Wes. All right. <laughs> well, thank you all for tuning in, and we will see you here in uh, hopefully a week or two for the next episode. All right. This wraps up another episode of Drilling It Down. We look forward to seeing you for the next episode. In the meantime, make sure to visit our website, mcgilladvisory.com. And if you aren't a current subscriber, subscribe to our newsletter. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your initial subscription.